Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Slate Money. Normally, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Emily Peck of the HuffPost. HuffPost. We are joined in the studio by Laurie Santos. You are the most popular professor at Yale University. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you really are. <laughs> yes, by the numbers, yes. And we have a whole Slate Plus segment just talking about the crazy that is tertiary education in America right now. But mainly what we're going to do is talk to you about the connection between money and happiness and whether and what direction the causality runs. We're going to talk about wine because it's my show and that's what we're <laughs> going to talk, talk about wine. We're going to talk about experiences and I think to kick us off, we're going to talk to Taffy Ackner about whether happiness is even something which we should be wanting in the first place. All that coming up on Slate Money. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. We are going to take advantage of the presence of Taffy Brodessa Agner in the studio to explain her theory about why you shouldn't want to be happy. It's it's not that I don't want to be happy. It's that it is not the end goal. It is more of an like an offshoot of the other things that I aspire for. I aspire to. I have a real like Calvinism in me that is about hard work and satisfaction, but the feeling of happiness is not is not my favorite feeling. What's your favorite feeling? I really I sometimes really love sadness and I am wild for anxiety. I am like, (laughs) I would snort anxiety through my nose if I could. And I hear you can, but I've never done that. (laughs) So is... Counterpoint. (laughs) So, Laurie, is this true? Is, Is it actually a good idea to aspire to happiness? I think it depends on what you mean. I mean, I think we're actually a lot in agreement here because mm-hmm. if you're the kind of person who's just actively seeking out happiness, like I want positive mood all the time, then you're almost like destined not to have positive mood at all. Because what the research shows is that happiness comes from being other oriented, worrying about other people's happiness, right. worrying about things that give you meaning that are much bigger than yourself. Right? right. And so ultimately, like the people who are seeking it by just kind of boosting their own happiness, like Pollyanna, smile, 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 they're doing it the wrong way. Right. And they're kind of not going to achieve it. So You've actually found the secret to happiness by being so disparaging Aww. of happiness. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> so what's the secret to anxiety? Because like Yeah, I've know. not heard the anxiety one. I, lo- I mean, I really f- I like love all of the emotions mm-hmm. except flatness. I hate flatness. That's the thing that I can't tolerate. But I seek I seek things that make me cry. I like I love it. I like if an episode of something was supposed to make me cry and didn't like I I saw Dear Evan Hansen and everyone around me was crying and I was so angry. I was like, why can't I get there? It was awful. 
No, but I think this is a thing that, I mean, people love scary movies. Like, people love incredibly sad movies. Um, The scary thing, I I really don't like being afraid. It's, like, one of my least Mm -hmm. favorite emotions. And so I find it completely fascinating when all these people go to haunted houses. You know, there's wonderful, around Halloween time, they do these screenshots of people in the middle of haunted houses. And they're making these faces that are like, (gasps) you know, they they don't look like they're experiencing positive emotion. And yet they're paying 50 bucks a pop. What do you think they're doing there? I think it's that we like a wide range of emotions. Right. We, we and we sometimes like things that don't feel good in the moment because it gives us something else. You know, hot chili peppers like pleasure often comes from right. things that don't feel good. And I think that's a disconnect in some of the happiness work. It's not all about positive emotion and positive mood. Sometimes it's about something bigger than that. You know, I made it through that chili pepper and I kind of feel proud and I can right. get a bigger chili pepper later. Like th- those are the kinds of things that resonate with the human experience. And I agree that, you know, the people who do work in the positive psychology space are people with a nuanced understanding of the word happiness and and how it translates into into the world. But I think so much of seeking happiness is about avoiding other emotions. And I don't like, and what happens when you get there? Like, what good did you, did you contribute to the world? Like, what so is that's, it? Yeah. That, I feel like that's like the Immanuel Kant sort of view of happiness, right? Which is that you, mm. you shouldn't aspire to be happy. You should aspire to deserve happiness. Yeah. And if happiness never comes, the satisfaction of deserving it is, is a, is a good thing. I, you know, I'm kind of a grim person, though. I'm like, I'm like cheerful, but but again, you can have there's there's dissociations dismal. between like being a grim person, positive mood, and all that stuff, and the other side of happiness, which like social science nerdy social scientists call this the cognitive part of happiness, which mm-hmm. is like, are you satisfied with your life? Do you have meaning? It's it's really the answer to the question. All things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? Right, and that can dissociate completely from you know, did you smile today? Did you laugh today? You know, were you experiencing super happy, positive mood? And I think, you know, the happiness research is trying to maximize both of them to a certain extent because, you know, it's nice when they go together for the people who are kind of into happy mood and sort of thing. Um, but I loved your <laughs> point about people who are avoidant of emotions because that's a, a real surefire way right. to increase unhappiness. In fact, one of our whole podcast episodes is about what happens when you try not to feel a bad mood is that it comes back with a vengeance. That's right. what the science suggests. So, Taffy. You are on the record yeah. as wanting to be richer than you are. Yes, I'm on the record anywhere that will have me on the record for that. <laughs> so if, if it's not to be happy, why do you want to be richer? For it to be easier. So I could work less hard and still do the things but that I like. But didn't you just say that like the whole like working hard is what makes you No, happy? I don't mean the work. Working hard makes me happy. Arranging babysitting so that I could work hard makes me miserable. Like having to be responsible for the house cleaning and the bill yeah, paying. Yeah, a happiness the- podcast that does not come with a babysitter for me is <laughs> a little useless to me. I'm only kidding. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> so is is that like a a better reason to want to be rich? A, a little bit. I think you know, one of the reasons that money doesn't make people happy, they're making very funny faces at each other. One of the reasons <laughs> that uh, money doesn't make people happy is we tend to spend it the wrong way. But a good way to spend it is exactly what you're saying. A, a strong way to spend money to achieve happiness is to use money to buy time, to get rid of time famine, right? So if you can hire a babysitter so you can go out and do the stuff you need, or you can hire a house cleaner to kind of get rid of the yucky stuff so you can get on with your, get on with your life, more power to you. And in fact, there's research that shows that 
people who make time-saving purchases with their money are actually happier. But also the money, the, all those money studies come from people who won the lottery, which is like a traumatic event. No one has ever been able to produce for me the person who was given a hundred thousand extra dollars a year to see how it goes for them. I would like that mm. happiness study. There, there was a recent, actually, just in the news recently, there was a wonderful like bank error on this where a couple, a bank accidentally gave a couple an extra, I think it was like 100000 or $120,000. And then they just didn't say anything. <laughs> they spent it. And it they claim that it actually didn't make them as happy as they thought. That's I think that's they're legal morally trouble. They're yes. feeling guilty. Yes. <laughs> they're terrible yeah, we, people. We have to work with banks to do this. I mean, as a social scientist, I would love to see this experiment. You know, we have to work with what we have. But I'm just but saying it, someone should take one of those grants and just give it to a person but like also, me. Even Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm volunteering. I'm, I'm hearing all Selfless. the foundations <laughs> typing to you right now. No. Um, no, but there are studies with folks who just happen to naturally be rich or came into money through their jobs and stuff like that. And what you find with them is Again, it's surprising to those of us that don't have a lot of money, but they self-report not being that happy either. And there's a couple of funny things that come with like really high wealth. One is that they're incredibly guilty a lot of the time because they're not happy and they think everybody yeah. else wants to be rich like me and I'm rich. Like what's going on? But the other thing is that they have they have really struggle with social relationships, which I find interesting. Yeah. Like it's really hard to meet new people and to get a sense of like these people want to hang out with me because of me as opposed to these people want my money. In one of the podcast episodes, I interview this guy, Clay Cockrell, who's a psychotherapist to the rich, though super wealthy. So all his clients earn more than $50 million a year. And what he finds is that, you know, he gets a lot of them because they're miserable. But the number one thing they report is like not being able to make friends. Like he tells a story of one client who like went to the gym, like joined a kind of crappy gym to like meet people and talk to them. And he couldn't have a conversation with them because he's like, you know, what did you do this weekend? I took my wife to a new restaurant. And the rich guy's like, I flew to Paris to try a new wine in my vineyard. And it's like, you just can't connect with normal people. Counterpoint. The people who earn more than $50 million a year have s something crazy going on in their heads that make them have a bevy of other symptoms of being antisocial. Because the amount of people you have to walk over to make even half of that. A mere $25 million. A mere $25 million. Or a million. Like, I mean... I mean, there is an idea that people at the top of any pyramid are sociopaths. So I think there is also something interesting because um, I listened to one episode of your podcast where the, the psychiatrist to the rich was on. And there was also something you were saying about sort of you reach a set point. So like maybe you're poor and then you come into a lot of money. And, it, and for the first little bit, you're like super excited because your life just got so much easier but then you get used to it. You and become it's not as hard. Wherever you go, there you are. That's exactly. the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I would just the... like to be where I am with more money. So, Why so, is that controversial? So, Taffy. On this podcast. <laughs> before <laughs> this before we lose podcast. you from this podcast, because we are going to lose you in one minute. Because, before, I'm, because I'm not relevant to this because conversation. You're not, because you are totally relevant to this conversation. I need to ask you <laughs> yeah. about a fictional character. Yes. Um, Rachel, in your book. In my book. She earns, what, like $3 million a year, something yeah, like that? Yeah, about that. Um, Three, four. And what does that do to her sort of it get, mental happiness? It doesn't change her happiness at all. It gets her closer to her goals. And the thing that happens to her happens to her because she is erased from the record of motherhood relevance by her husband because... She's she's earning money. 
It has. It doesn't really have that. But that said, I don't think money is going to make her happy. She was already kind of wealthy. Why? Why does she feel the need to make so much money? Because she lives on the Upper East Side, and she doesn't want to be. She doesn't want her kids to be the poorest people they know. The way she was the poorest person she knew. Is it true? It's a symptom of of being raised in an area where you are the person who has more money than most of the people on earth and less money than everyone you know. Is it true that, as uh, one person I know who read the book said, that most, if not all, of the problems in this book could have been solved if they just all moved to Brooklyn? I would like that person to say it to my face. (laughs) (laughs) She makes more than her husband. Much more. She makes much more than her husband, who already earns a lot of money being a doctor. But everyone's in finance now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, you. Taffy, thank you for being here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was it? Switch my face. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so Laurie, let's zoom back and and try and answer the, the big question that we brought you on here to answer, which is the relationship between money and happiness and when and how and whether money can buy happiness because i have a feeling that it maybe can and you have a feeling that it maybe can't no i think i think it's complicated i think whether or not money can buy you happiness depends on how much money you have right now um and also depends on how you spend it you know so if you're currently living below the poverty line and you get some extra infusion of cash yes that is going to make you happier it's going to make you less stressed it's going to increase your positive mood If you're like, you know, kind of middle class, maybe getting a little money will help you. But if you're earning over $100,000 a year in most places in the country, doubling your salary is not actually going to improve your well-being on most standard measures. It might make you think your life is better. Like you sometimes like have this kind of ladder of satisfaction of I'm achieving more in my life because I'm making more money. But if I look on the ground at your well-being, your stress levels in the moment, not going to see any difference. And that's a household income, like including kids and mortgage and all yep. of the, so this all was, the things. This was a study done uh, by Danny Kahneman and colleagues, like where he looked at three different measures of well-being um, and then tried to look at that across salary levels. And at low salary levels, like 10K and 20K in the US right now, you see this like steep rise. Like you're basically doubling your well-being every time you double your salary. But then everything levels off in the US around 75K. And it like really levels off, right? So if you start looking out there, at people who are earning 200k and so on, you're seeing like the same levels of well-being as somebody earning 75k. Are they maybe looking at the wrong measure? I mean, because we know that like richer people live literally live longer, have better health. I mean, is that when they say measure of well-being or are, are factors like that included? Because perhaps nothing can actually buy happiness, as we were just saying. Happiness is complicated, and it's not about pursuing happiness. It's about pursuing this other stuff. But there are all these other sort of health measures yeah, that you no, can yeah. buy. I mean, healthier people are happier, right? Uh, it's actually, it, it, that is true, but the causal direction actually goes the opposite way, which what? is kind of crazy, which is 
happier people tend to be healthier. So one study brought this was measuring happiness as positive mood. You bring people in, you have them fill out questionnaires, you generally a positive mood person. Then you expose these folks to rhinovirus. Like you have them sniff something that has like the virus of the common cold in it. And then you look at who gets sick. And the people who generally have more positive mood are less likely to get sick. Happy people actually live longer. But again, that seems to be you measure happiness in someone's 20s. And then you look, do they live into the 90s? And you find your happiness in your 20s actually predicts whether or not you're going to live longer. But rich people also live longer. Rich people So rich people are happier then. Well, you know, <laughs> actually, the, the, the causal arrow for happiness and riches also goes in the opposite direction. So I measure, I measure your happiness level in middle school, right, when you're like 13 or 14 years old, and then I come back in your 30s. And what you find is that people who are in the lowest quartile of happiness levels at 14 have the lowest income levels. I think they earn something like 30% less than other folks. And so this is what, I mean, Have you done any studies on like, if you name your kid Felix, which means happiness, <laughs> is, he, is he more likely? To I think I think that's happy. next on the agenda for these social scientists. No, but but this is crazy. I mean, what we what we think is that you have to do this stuff to get happiness. I have that intuition too, incredibly strongly. Like I think you know, if I win the lottery, I'll be happier. If I you know get some huge raise or my podcast does really well, it will make me happy. But the strong data suggests that the other causal direction is there, too, that happiness predicts all this stuff. It predicts voting behavior. It predicts whether or not you're going to ace a job interview. Wait, what does it say later. about how you vote? So happier people tend to vote more often. Huh. So they're more likely to vote, which is kind of, again, very counterintuitive. Again, right? rich people vote more often than poor, poor people don't vote. Huh. Anyway, so all these causal arrows are like really complicated. Mm. But the, I guess the thing is that what the data bear out is that we have these super strong intuitions about this stuff. I mean, you should see the student, how much the students fight with me when I present the 75K data. I usually have a line of these Yale students who all want to go into finance. That's like 50 kids long who are like, but what if I, you know, what if I live, you know, in like, you know, I really want to live in the Upper West Side, like definitely 75K. And it's like, you know, well, you know, to be fair, we haven't done exactly that study of people exactly in the Upper West Side with your background, but... By and large, you know, the averages kind of look like this. And so our intuitions are like really, really strong. So every, so it seems to me that most Americans think that they're above average drivers. I think I'm the only exception to this rule. But basically all... I also think I'm not a great driver. I'm not <laughs> a bad driver. <laughs> um, but basically all Americans think that they would be much happier and or better off if they won the lottery. And like... This is the, I mean, statistically speaking, we know that's false. Like we've, the, the lottery study is the one which is super robust and that's been studied a lot. And we know that winning the lottery does not make people happier. And yet everyone is convinced they're the exception to that rule. Oh, yeah. My dad is like obsessed with winning the Powerball and has like a detailed Excel file of like how he will spend different amounts of money once he wins. And it's like I'm like, Dad, you realize I go on the radio and say this is crazy. And yet you play the Powerball all the time. This is embarrassing. But it's like, no, he's like, well, those people you talk about, honey, they don't know how to spend it. And so it's like, so we all have this. We all so have are this. there any exceptions to the rule? I mean, I'm sure, you know, again, like the world is large. I'm sure there's some people who play the lottery who get happier. But my guess is that those people did a few things that most lottery winners don't. One is that 
they spent their money the right way. You know, they probably gave a lot of it away to charity, gave a lot of it away to other people. They found ways to continue their social relationships, which is really tricky with lottery winners because, right. you know, if you're playing the lottery, you're probably in a lower income bracket and now you have $500 million and no one else in your family does, right? You're going to be living a lifestyle that's really different from all your friends from before. And that can cause these disconnects that you don't expect. When when we think about winning the lottery, we think about like sitting in a bathtub with money, like, you know, you know Scrooge McDuck or something. We don't think like how awkward it's going to be of who pays the tab when I want to go to a fancy restaurant in New York and you kind of can't afford it, right? Like those those I things are that example because just pay the tab, you're rich. But then it's Why like do you stressful? pay the tab all the time. Do you, yes, do you, do you have sure. friends? Do you, you have friends who always pay the tab? Just one. <laughs> and, I have and, a friend like that. And, doesn't that make you feel? Does that icky? make you feel a bit awkward? No. She no, it doesn't make me feel awkward. It really doesn't. Sometimes I'll offer to go out someplace else, and I'd be like, "I'm going to pay." So can we go to this shitty diner or whatever? But I don't know. I feel like if if I have a friend with five hundred million dollars and they don't just pay, then what's wrong with them? I mean, when you talk to the actual <laughs> when you talk to the actual Rick, I mean, the, that's like one example of a calculus they're doing all the time. Yeah. Um, I now that I teach about happiness, I get to you know be a speaker at all these wonderful kind of finance events, and I talk to like people who are in the incredibly super wealthy category, and they'll say things like. One stressor I have is that, you know, with this money, I can really help. I can really do something good. I can help something. I want to give it to charity. But which one? Like they experience an opportunity cost of like, I could donate this to cancer or I could give it to a political party that I care about or I could stop homelessness. Like in what my choice. And is then an they have like paralysis and they don't give it to any of them. Exactly. Right. And I think or, or like, you know, I'm going to give it all to my family. Right. You know, I'm going to give it away to my family. But, you know, that cousin has addiction issues. Like, am I enabling that? You know, should I make my kids rich? You know, is it a good idea to just like give your kids a huge trust fund? Like, what does that do to their sense of meaning? Well, what does it do? I mean, you're the expert. If 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 I have a trust fund, does that make me less happy? Well, I think it kind of messes people. I mean, you know, in in a lot of ways, we don't expect this, but sometimes happiness comes from adversity, right? It comes from pushing yourself really hard and thinking you have a life with meaning. You know, if all of a sudden you get infused with some cash, like you don't have to do anything anymore, like. You know, why why do you even get up in the morning? I was thinking about that because so much of when you're an adult, you sort of like make up a story about yourself and how you became successful. And so it's great to have a story where you start kind of, I had nothing and I bootstrapped or whatever. And now look at me. But if you come into it with a trust fund, even if you do accomplish a lot, there must be some feeling of like, I had so much help. Maybe it makes you, is that what you're saying? It makes you feel bad. That's right. You know, I think that guilt issues are just like so profound in these like groups of the super wealthy because, you know, they get that they, you know, they don't, not everybody has what they have, right? And so they kind of feel guilty about it. I think that's especially true when you're- And you don't even need to be super wealthy, right? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think even if you're a person who has an income that's even slightly higher than your friend group, you know, I see this in my college students who finish, you know, there's some that like go off to grad school and are penny pinching and there's others that go into finance and they were roommates for four years. And it becomes hard to kind of navigate that rift, even for people who really cared about each other. So so money doesn't always kind of bring the ease that we think. Sometimes it comes with more complications than we expect. That said, doesn't it bring the ease, though? Because we've all been like in the penny pinching situation where it's like every time you leave your apartment, you're faced with all this de- these depressing things that you can you can't afford anything. Every choice you make in a store requires a lot of arithmetic in your head. And it's extremely stressful. We know that. And having money does make life easier. It and- really does. Like, I feel like 
saying poor rich people can't decide where to give. I have a hard time yeah. feeling. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I want to jump in here and just sort of say, like, on the one hand, we all can agree that if you're poor and you, you know, are literally like looking at prices in the grocery store saying, what can I afford? Mm-hmm. That's stressful. But I, but I'm going to come out and say that even significantly above $75,000, like, you know, there are always money constraints. We're not talking about the super wealthy. Mm-hmm. If you're earning like two or $300,000, it's like you're, that's a finite amount of money. And the ability to sort of so, you know, let's say you're traveling somewhere and you look up where the good restaurants are and you say, oh, that one looks good. Let's go there. And not having to worry about how much it costs or whether you can afford it is a degree of freedom that is yeah. that makes you happier. Yeah, that's what I think. And so in that sense, like the difference between 100000 and like $300,000, you'd think would make a difference. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the problem is that if you actually talk to the people who are earning like the $300,000, what happens is it comes with other consequences that we're not thinking of, right? Like now the difference between the restaurants you were thinking of at $100,000, you are like, oh, I could go to that place and just not think about it. That's not where the $300,000 people are eating. They're feeling sad that they can't go to the restaurant. We don't even know about like, <laughs> it doesn't have a sign mm-hmm. like we can't afford it right and, and they have other constraints now you know now their kids are in a special super expensive private school right now they're hanging out with people who wear you know off the runway clothing right so they feel bad and they have to put it in like this is the problem of what scientists call hedonic adaptation right even when you get to an awesome level like you just think you know i'm used to it now i'm like comparing myself against other people who have more i've forgotten what it was like to do the penny pinching like. yeah um, one of the studies we talk about in the podcast, which is which I just find so striking, is so you ask people at different wealth levels, like, how much would you just need to be happy and reduce your stress, right? So you ask people earning 30K right now in the U.S., how much would you need? Those folks say, if I just got 50K, I would be fine. Wouldn't need any more. Like, all my stresses would be good. So in theory, we should ask the 50K people, and they should be like, you know, maybe I'll get a little happier, but basically all my needs are bent. No. These, uh, the... The article that reported this actually asked folks who were earning $100,000, how much do you need? And those folks say, I need $250,000. Then I would be good. And so there's two things about that. One is that because of hedonic adaptation, you never feel like you're done, right? You always want some more. But the more striking thing is that the ratio actually goes up as you get more money. So 30000 to 50000 is less of a jump than like 100000 to 250000 And so I think that's the, you know... That's the problem. Am I the only person who's actually happy with how much he's earning? <laughs> I, I have the, you might be spending you see, it correctly. You know? CNBC every year or the past couple of years, they send out this article. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? It's this couple who makes, I think, $500,000 a year and they oh, lay God, out article, all yeah, their they, expenses in a spreadsheet. And they're and all then, very, very stressed and worried. And they it. say, we're actually middle class. We make 500000 We can barely afford to live. And then everyone dissects the spreadsheet and it's like, oh, it turns out they have like two three Land cars, Rovers yeah. and they're paying three private school tuitions and they're spending $10,000 a month on travel. It's kind of like that. Like they've adapted their lifestyle to sort of, they're still scrapping to get by. And I think their lifestyle, I mean, all our lifestyles <laughs> don't exist in objective terms, they exist in a comparison to the other people we live near, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they might have the two Land Rovers when their neighbors have three, or maybe Land Rovers are kind of gauche and they're sort of like slightly embarrassed that they don't have, I don't know, I don't know, car differences in wealth levels. But, <laughs> but the point is that like you're, you change your environment, you change your expectations, and you change what you're used to in that moment. The way to make rich people happy, honestly, would be have like two weeks a year where they went back to penny pinching, where you take away all your money, you're like, nope, 
dude, you got to go to McDonald's and count like how much, you know, change you have to make it work. I bet if they could just go back to their life after that, they'd feel amazing. <laughs> so it should lucky. be a reality show. I think you just it would yeah. be. Yeah. <laughs> if if anyone's listening, let's, let's make it happen. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so now that raises the big question which I've been thinking about all along here, which is why do we always compare ourselves to people who are richer than us? What is it about this thing where, you know, the you can be in the top 2%, but all you're doing is comparing yourself to people in the top 1% rather than everyone else in the other 98%? What like it seems obvious that if you are the poorest person in your peer group you're going to be less happy than if you're the richest person in your peer group but why does it seem that everyone is the poorest person in their peer group <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. A good question. yeah i mean it is that way sadly because our minds just kind of suck <laughs> like this is just a central feature of our mind it's actually something we share with monkeys like it's just we compare ourselves against others we don't think in objective terms about anything including money we think in relative terms and our brains find the most salient reference point so if i ask you you know how social are you how many parties do you go to and so on you don't think of like some loser who stays home and plays Fortnite. you think of like oh that one friend who goes out all the time and i feel embarrassed because i always feel like i'm home like your brain always shoots to like the most extreme example and with money our brains shoot to the most extreme example they're salient right like they're the ones who are on tv they're the ones who are wearing the cool stuff they're the ones who are parading what they have on instagram and so it's like a natural comparison point that we stick to so instagram is an is a vector of unhappiness I think that's def- I mean, there are data that bear that out, that if you kind of assign people to look at Instagram or Facebook or any of the social media for a little while, they come out feeling like they're less wealthy. Um, television is another route. So uh, one study showed that it, for every extra hour you watch of TV, you think that you are less wealthy than the average person and you think that wealth is higher in the U.S. And the idea is like, again, it makes sense. Who are you watching on TV? We're not seeing s- stories about like, you know, reality TV is not like a bunch of refugees and people who really are earning the norm. Like it's about, you know, the real housewives of blah, 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 or just like. And that's replaced like Roseanne or whatever working class Mm -hmm. thing we used to work. I think that's right. Yeah. And I think even I mean, even just like the news coverage of people is the rich and famous. Right. Like we tend not to focus. I mean, you can name the names of the rich people who are on TV, but I don't think you can name the names of the refugees you saw on TV before. And that's just the way our minds work. Like our minds lock on to the people who are better than us, which is a sucky feature of our mind because it means that we can objectively be doing incredibly well. And we feel super awful about it. This reminds me of something we had on the author of The Meritocracy Trap recently. Daniel Markovitz. Yeah. And um, he, for his number in the episode, We All Bring a Number, he brought up the poverty rate. And he said, you know, people are now, there's less poverty. But at the same time, there's more inequality. And then he said, why why aren't we happy with that? Like, Basically, his (laughs) thesis in the book is that (laughs) Inequality in the 60s was about the poor, and now it's about the rich. And yeah, that's a big change exactly. in inequality. And it kind of relates to what you're saying because it's like, yes, people at the bottom are theoretically better off, but because people at the top are so much better off that everyone, that 
winds up feeling bad. Yeah. I mean, most of us, like financially speaking, again, this is not, this is all averages, right? But objectively speaking, most of us have gotten better off since the 1950s mm-hmm. in terms of wealth levels, right? And we have Especially like air conditioning and refrigeration yeah, like and washing houses, machines. Right. Yeah. Smartphones. Smartphone. But if you look at the well-being data, what you find is that on standard measures of well-being, you don't see much of a difference. If there's any difference, it te- well-being tends to go down. Even with like air conditioning, oh. you think air conditioning <laughs> would just obviously make people happier. You you would think, but hedonic adaptation being what it is, even the conveniences of modern life, you know, go away. But but that's striking, right? It means like our objective like spot is nothing if we have other people who are better than us. And I think the point in the meritocracy trap is that nowadays we have people who are like way better. I mean, the research suggests we can't even fathom how much higher people are mm-hmm. uh, than than normal lay folks. I mean, one of the analogies I heard recently is a step analogy. So if you imagine income in the U.S. and every step is $100,000, right? Most Americans haven't taken a single step on the like staircase, right? Those that do take a first step, like now you're up there, like how many steps up are a millionaire, right? Well, you know, they're like, 10 more steps up, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, like they're, but then you look at Bessos and stuff like that. It's like, they're like the Eiffel Tower up from <laughs> mm-hmm. most Americans, right? Like, you know, they're like halfway to the moon and we're not thinking about it. And so it's like, we don't really, when you think about like, oh, there's some people who are like really, really rich. We're not calculating the actual orders of magnitude about how much richer they are. You know, like Bessos can spend the salary of most Americans, like, several times over every day right. and not notice it like this by the is, end of the year. Uh, this is a conversation I had with Chris Hayes um, from MSNBC a few years ago where we talked about fractal inequality. And no matter how rich you get, there's always people who are like infinitely richer than you and you always feel infinitely poorer than them. And it never goes away, that feeling of missing out. Yeah. It seems like such a failure of the United States experiment because, right, it's all about... First, it was John Locke said it was pursuit of property, and then it gets switched to pursuit of happiness. They all get tied up together. Everyone's going for money and happiness, and it's all wrong. It's all misguided. The more money you go for, the more money you get, the less happy, happy I guess, are. you are, and you make everyone else less happy for along for the ride too everyone below you and this then this is like the central Sad. problem of the happiness and one of the reasons we're doing this podcast right is that our minds seem to lie to us about the stuff that matters you know like everyone's like all right pursue happiness like this is great i mean that's literally in the founding documents yeah, of right. the country but they didn't lay out how to pursue it and i mm-hmm. think their minds just gave but, them their own but, i mean was that just a bad idea was that fundamentally misguided to put like the pursuits of happiness up there with life and liberty because honestly pursuing happiness it's like it's not a good idea right well, I think it's like, I mean, the data again suggests it. Like the the data suggests that like it's a pretty good idea. I mean, should we pursue longer life? Should we pursue more civic behavior? Happier people also are more pro-social. Happier people are more likely to recycle and do nice things for the environment. Like there's so many odd like things that but happiness like, is But you need of. to get there kind of indirectly. You pursue one thing and you get Well, that's why I think they a, went wrong. They needed yeah. like life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, like asterisks. By the way, what you think pursuing happiness <laughs> is about, totally wrong. Why? Watch the Happiness right. Lab podcast and you'll you know, be able to figure it out. So I need to ask you about my theory, which I've had for a few years, about the most predictable and certain way that you can use money to buy happiness, which is that you go into your favorite local wine store and you buy a bottle of wine that's about... 30 to 50% more expensive than you normally spend on wine. And then you 
take it home and you drink that wine with a good meal and you are almost guaranteed to feel very happy about you're that drunk? wine. <laughs> <laughs> There's controlling like, for alcohol five minutes across. Yeah. There, yeah. there mm-hmm. is this there is this very, very robust finding that people who think that the wine that they're drinking is expensive enjoy it much more than people who think that the wine that they're drinking is cheap, regardless of whether it's expensive or cheap. And 99% of the time when we drink wine, we're entirely aware of how cheap or expensive it was. You know, we've just bought it at the store Mm -hmm. and we know how much it cost. And so I just put those two things together. If you buy something which is expensive and then you drink it, you are going to be happier. But I have, a, I have <laughs> one, I have one uh, update to that, which might be better, is that send your friend to the store, you know, with the $50 bottle of wine, but they come back and buy a bottle of two-buck chuck that you can't identify. You think it's a $50 bottle of wine, but they just saved 40 bucks, and they can go off and do something nice for themselves. So you get this pleasure, and then later he'll be like, psych, here's the 40 bucks back. And, like, and then you get the pleasure, pleasure again. Yeah. I, I know. Cool. It's like, wow. That that's that's next level happiness hacking right there. But the other good thing about the wine is is what you're spending it on, right? Which is that the wine is not going to be like some material object that sticks around forever and is going to be subject to hedonic adaptation. And stuff. If you're like, like spending me, it on stuff is never a good idea. Spending right? it on stuff is never a good idea. But for funny reasons, one reason is this kind of adaptation, right? Stuff sticks around. You know, everybody's heralding this new iPhone 11. It's going to be awesome. It's going to make everybody happy. But that, in some ways, is a bad investment on happiness because like your iPhone 11 is going to be there next month. Mm. And you're not going to care about it next month. Your your emotions are going to have moved on. And so if you spend the iPhone 11 money on some good experiences or on something else, that might uh, that might be better. Um, it sounds but, like Christmas hangover. But the second reason— But re- ask yeah. any teenager. If you don't have a smartphone, that does make you unhappy. That's true. You need a, a smartphone, maybe like <laughs> an iPhone 7 or something like that. Um, but the other—the teenager example gets to the second reason why um, spending on experiences is better, which is like it doesn't make you look— like as much of a tool as if you spend it on material goods, right? So so at, at Yale, everybody's wearing like Canada Goose jackets. That's the like posh jacket for college students. And they're like, you know, above $1,000 to get a winter jacket kind of thing. But there's like a whole culture of memes of making fun of people in Canada Goose jackets. Because when somebody buys a Canada Goose jacket, you think they're pawns, like, you know, they're, you know, terrible fashion icon, like wasting their money, blah, blah, blah. But if somebody buys a like kind of over the top like vacation or kind of over the top bottle of wine, you don't think they're as much of a jerk as if they spend their money on the material possessions. Mm. And it also, if you spend it on, say, a good experience, then you could talk about that bottle of wine. Like if you told me like, oh, man, I tried this really great bottle of wine. It was fruity. Or I went on this cool vacation. And I saw all this stuff. If you're like, my Canada Goose jacket is so soft. and it, like, mm-hmm. like you just sound like a jerk. No one wants to talk right. to you. And so experiences also connect us socially in a way that material goods don't. Is there any evidence that Expensive vacations make us happier than cheap vacations? It's more just the experience of it, right? So I think if you can get as kind of good of an experience for cheap. Um, but can you? That's the question. <laughs> I think so. I think if you're mindful and paying attention. <laughs> Emily's like, no, yeah. no, you need you need the money. No one wants to stay L- in a last bad night, motel. Last night, my husband and I walked down to the, uh, the Italian village and they have some like big festival and we just kind of watched crazy people and ate fried food. And that cost us like, you know. 12 bucks New York money, and that was pretty fantastic. I don't know if this posher New York vacation would so be better. So money doesn't make you happy, but if you happen to have the money and you want to be happy, spend it on experiences, not on stuff. Mm-hmm. Spend and, it on getting— And buy time. And buy yourself some time. Um, the third thing, which, again, most people don't like, is give it away. 
if you have a lot of money, (laughs) (laughs) and he's like, why would I give it away? This is like you you guys will see. Like after this podcast, I'm going to get flamed on Twitter. It was like, who's that Yale telling us to give our money away? What's our problem? (laughs) No, no. But the research on giving money away, so uh, controlled for income level, people who give more to charity are happier, Mm -hmm. Um, and controlled for kind of income level, which is not great. People who spend more of their time volunteering are happier. But that's just correlational. There's also lovely experimental work on this where you force people to give money away and you see if it makes them happy. This is some work by uh, a professor, Liz Dunn. And so she gives people money on the street. She's like, here's 20 bucks. And she says, spend it on yourself or spend it on somebody else by the end of the day. And then she calls them at the end of the day and at the end of the week and asks who's happier. And it, everyone predicts that the person who spends it on themselves will be happier because, like, duh, treat yourself. You get something. But it turns out at the end of the day and at the end of the week, people who give it away are happier, which is not what we predict. You know, when I'm having a crappy day at work, I'm not like – and I'm thinking, like, I'm going to get a massage or I'm going to get a manicure. I'm not like – I'm just going to give some random person on the street a massage or a manicure. <laughs> but actually, the data suggests that would be better. I have to say that, you know, we we, we have occasional – you know, philanthropy, special issues and stuff here on State Money. We're, we're kind of into this idea. And I, in just my personal experience, I'm with you on this one. It makes you feel really good. Mm-hmm. I do have this uh, sort of idiosyncratic idea that, number one, that charity makes you feel better than philanthropy. That, like, mm-hmm. giving money to a person so that you help help out a poor person directly makes you feel better than, like, doing some strategic thing to probably make the world a better place in some vague way. Yeah, yeah we kind of like it when we see see the goods. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I bet, you know, donating the same money to kind of some good philanthropy thing, for many of us, won't feel as good as, like, you just do something nice for a physical person that's there who you see, like, them kind of brighten up when they get the free coffee or the free manicure or something right. like that. Like, Give money to your friends who need it. It's it's actually just as effective, in, certainly in on a selfish way. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel really good in a way that, like, giving money to like the Red Cross, like, it feels weird. Um, but I also need to ask you, since you know you're Yale, like, does this also work for just like if you add an extra drop to the thirteen billion dollar Yale endowment? Does that make people in feel theory, better? In theory, I mean, again, you know, I'm sure Yale would love me to do the exact study of like you know getting lots of donors and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think especially if it gets connected to re- real people's feelings. Um, so some universities, including Yale, are now doing this thing where they have the folks who get financial aid or get kind of summer fellowship money or something say what they did with it and write back to the person and be like, "Hey, thanks so much for that five thousand bucks." You know, I was able to go to Bhutan and study this cool, you know, thing I was interested in. Thank you. Like when you get that letter, it can be incredibly powerful, right? Because now you're like, I see the recipient. This is not some nebulous thing. This is a person who got to do this thing they wouldn't have otherwise gotten to do. And that feels nice, more nice than we expect. Right. And the other thing, which I was just having this conversation a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine who was like, and it was over dinner, and she was just like, "If I needed money, she asked us all, like, would you get? Would, would you lend me the money?" And we all kind of said the same thing, which was like, "No, if you needed money, we would give you the money, but we would never lend you the money because lending you the money is just a miserable mm. thing, which makes us all so much less happy." Yeah, usury used to be a sin. We kind of lost that with the finance, <laughs> but right. it was a bad thing before. So, is Andrew Yang going to make America happier if he becomes elected president and is able to give everyone a thousand dollars a month? I think, I mean, again, I think if everybody, you know, I think we should scale it to those who really, there are a lot of people in the U.S. who need $1,000 a month to put them at that 75K. In fact, Mm -hmm. most Americans need that to get to the 75K. And I think that really will decrease people's stress and increase people's happiness. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Let's have a numbers round. Do you have a number? Uh, my number would be uh, 700, which is the uh, cost of a new iPhone 11, <laughs> which if you care about happiness, you should probably not spend on the iPhone. You could spend instead on 365 days of buying someone at work a tall coffee from Starbucks. I just bought an iPhone 11. I'm sorry. You did? Is that it? That's <laughs> my, not it. No, this is oh, my yeah, old iPhone it. 7 and its battery life is about one second, which is why I'm always plugging it in when I'm when I'm in the studio and using the stopwatch to try and work out how much time the podcast is elapsing because if I don't plug it in, it runs out of battery and I need a new phone and, and it's purple. I mean, purple makes me happy. There is something there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The only number I can think of is 82. What's 82? 82% is the um, latest from, from the census bureau. It is the gender pay gap between women and men. Women still make less than men, 18% less. And even though that is true, the Trump administration is uh, just killed an effort to even measure pay gaps inside companies that the EEOC was planning to implement, which that does not make me happy, Lori. doesn't make me happy either. So my number is $60 million, which is, as of the recording of this podcast, the current jackpot for the Powerball... And my theory about playing the lottery is that it makes you happier. I have, I, I, I really do believe this. I don't necessarily believe that winning the lottery makes you happier, but I do believe that playing the lottery, ha- like and spending two dollars to have a whole bunch of dreams of wonderful wonder what could happen if you are wealthy, is something which not only makes you happier directly, but also makes it less likely that you're going to be doing stupid stuff with the other 99.9% of your money in terms of trying to get rich quick. Like, if you can, it's like a, it inoculates you against get rich quick schemes. I love it. We used to buy lottery tickets at work, and it was always really fun because the whole team would chip in, and then we'd have a big conversation like, would you come into work if we won? Who would come in? And we'd all be like, no one would come in, and it was just so fun. <laughs> the anticipation of good things that mm-hmm. you buy you with your money is actually sometimes better than the things that you get. Anticipating the experiences you're going to do is sometimes better than the experience themselves. That's which why is they why say take more shorter vacations, because looking forward to the vacation is better than the vacation itself. And really plan it far in advance, right? Because if you have two whole months to look forward to your vacation, it's better than just like kind of deciding on a whim at the last minute. So are you with me? Is it good to play the lottery even though winning the lottery is a bad thing? <laughs> I think there are better things one could do with one's cash. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, okay, so that's it for Slate Money, though. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Jessamine Molly for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.